All right, the book of James is uh, one of what we like to call the Hebrew Christian epistles. The book of James was very likely the, the first document, if we want to say it that way, the first book that was pinned down of the New Testament. Uh, some folks attribute First Thessalonians to that. I think James is probably even earlier than that, and I can give you some reasons uh, for that. But the book of James was probably written during uh, the period of time between about 45 A.D. and 50 to 55 A.D. And part of the reason we believe, by the way, that it's the earliest of the New Testament books is the same reason that we know that Job was the earliest pinned down of the Old Testament books. You know, the book of Job is uh, 42 chapters long, and there's no mention made of the law. And it stands to reason that in 42 chapters of conversation about the big issues of life, including some conversations between God and man, that if it had been after post-Sinai, there would have been some mention made of the Old Testament law, and it is not. And you might say, well, preacher, I thought Genesis was older. Well, the things contained in Genesis are older. Uh, we might even stretch it as far as to say that certainly those narrative accounts were pinned down earlier by somebody. But the Pentateuch was compiled by Moses. Uh, so, of course, Moses came many, many, many moons after uh, Job. He, he, he pinned all of those things down after Sinai. You say, how do you know that? Because he wrote about Sinai. And he wrote the law. So uh, it, it had to have been after that. And the book of James is very similar. The book of James presents, and there's two perspectives to look at. You, you could say that the book of James presents a very rudimentary Christian faith. And it does. One could also say that the book of James presents a very advanced Judaistic perspective on Christianity, on faith, and the ideas of knowing God and religion. And by the way, I believe both of those things are true. We'll say a word about it here in a moment. But all of the great and grand truths that God showed to the Apostle Paul, uh, Paul would over and over again use the term mystery. He said, I show you a mystery. This, this thing is a mystery. I speak concerning a mystery. The term mystery in your Bible does not mean something that cannot be known, but it means something that was not known, but has been revealed by God. So actually, by virtue of its definition, a mystery doesn't mean something concealed, but something revealed. And those things were revealed to the Apostle Paul. He, in turn, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, pinned those things down. And none of those great and grand truths that, that relate to the body of Christ, the position of the believer in Christ in this day of grace, none of those things are contained in the book of James. Now, James, as we'll see here in a few moments, and Paul were not strangers to each other, uh, certainly the things that God used Paul to pin down were widespread amongst the New Testament church. Uh, the only logical conclusion is James must have written his epistle before Paul ever came down any of the epistles that God gave to him. So the book of James very likely predates the following epistles. It probably predates uh, James' interactions with the apostle Paul. And uh, because of that, there is a very important perspective concerning with James that we must have to approach. Um, I'll allow the commentator to say it better than I can say it. I want you to listen to this introductory uh, material, and then we'll, we'll say a few words, read some passages of Scripture, and then we'll say some things about James as an individual. Uh, you can find this, by the way, in page one of your notes, and if you're wondering what this book is up here, uh, this is the commentary that I use probably more than any other commentary in, in the preparation of this material. A lot of the material that you'll have in your hands comes straight from this book. Uh, this is Exploring the Epistle of James by John Phillips. Now, I'll tell you a couple things about John Phillips and about commentary. One is, uh, this right here is inspired. This is not. 
<laughs> very, very simple. This is King James Bible. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's preserved. It's perfect. Everything about it, uh, other than Mr. Schofield's notes, <laughs> uh, but everything about it is it's preserved. It's inerrant. This commentary is not. It is a, a product of uh, human minds. Not to say that God didn't guide Mr. Fields in writing it. I wouldn't be using it if I didn't feel like it had. But it's not inspired the way that Scripture is inspired. Something else I'll say is I don't agree with him about everything that he says. One of the things I like about John Phillips is he always sticks with the King James Bible. He never seeks to correct the King James Bible. And that's important. Amen. If we don't know where the Bible is and what the Bible is, then how can the Bible help us? Uh, but I'll admit that Mr. Phillips is probably was not, he's in heaven now, but was not as much of an absolutist about King James Bible as I am, and I, I believe it's right to be so. Uh, but it's still a good commentary. It's worthwhile if you want a commentary uh, on the book of James or really any of these commentaries. Uh, they're well worth the money and the time it takes to read them. And so if you want something that you can have alongside notes that expounds, expands on some of these things a little bit more that we'll say, then that's, that's a good resource. I think I got this on Amazon for about 15 bucks. It's hardback, so uh, it should last for a while if you don't let your dogs or your toddlers play with it. So, uh, you know, pretty good resource. And I, a lot of times I like to say that. There are some other resources that I looked at, but most of the material uh, comes from that. It comes from anywhere other than my deranged site. So, uh, let's go ahead and begin by reading this introductory material. I think it's going to give you a little different perspective on James as a man in the book of James as well. James was a Jew. He might perhaps have considered himself a completed Jew, and I believe he probably did. But he was a Jew for all that, and as such, was bound by his Jewishness to both the Mosaic Law and the traditions of the rabbis. His Christianity never did rise much above Judaism, even though it was Judaism at its best. Judaism of James was long-standing. Moreover, it was probably a major factor in his rejection of the claims of Christ for so many years. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, the first time I read that, it seemed a little extreme to me. It seemed a little bit critical uh, to me. But the more you examine James's life, the things that he did, the little snippets we have in Scripture, the more I'm convinced that the writer is probably correct about that. That it was a very rudimentary faith that James presents. Now, that's not to say there's not deep profundity in the things that he says. It's not to say that James is not just as inspired as the rest of Scripture. We understand that though James may have penned it, it was the Holy Ghost that wrote it. Right. Amen? And so I don't say that to, to, to disparage anything about the book of James, but it does help us to understand some of the unique things about James' perspective, why he said things the way that he did, or why the Holy Ghost permitted his personality to shine through as much as it did. James was the Lord's brother, therefore had the awesome privilege of being reared in the same home that God chose to house his incarnate son. That someone could live in the same house as the Lord Jesus for so many years and remain an unbeliever seems incredible, but so it was. And again, we'll read some of these scriptures that substantiate that in a moment. But let me just pause there and say, again, it's pretty well accepted that the James that wrote the book of James was not James the Apostle, was not uh, James the son of Alphaeus, but was very most likely James the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we'll show you why that is here in, in a moment, but that's the James that we're talking about. Peter said that the Lord Jesus went about doing good in Acts 10.38. We can be sure that he did the same at home. He was transparently honest, unfailingly compassionate, and ever ready to help others. He was sinless. He displayed the highest kind of wisdom. He was as brave as a lion and as bold as an Old Testament prophet. He was impeccably good, perfectly poised in every situation, and flawlessly balanced in his decisions and reactions at all times. He was perfect when he was a babe, a child, a youth, and a man. 
His sinless perfection was exhibited in the home, in the classroom, in the synagogue, and in the marketplace. He was never prudish, never pushy, and never proud. He was never rude, never critical, and never selfish. He excelled at school, at his trade, and in his knowledge of the Word of God. He discriminated unerringly between right and wrong and between truth and error. He saw through the legalism of the synagogues, the man-made traditions of the rabbis and the scribes, the extremism of the zealots, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the opportunism of the Herodians, and the rationalism of the Sadducees. Day by day, moment by moment, he set before his brothers and sisters, his mother and foster father, his neighbors and his customers and friends, the wonder of a perfect life. He was man inhabited by God, God manifesting the flesh. And James failed to see that fact. For that matter, neither did the other brothers in that natural home see it. That said something about the blindness of the unregenerate human heart. And I pause there and say this, that this, this bears deeply on who James became as the individual. What force could have so combated the influence of Christ? What force could have so blinded James to the ever-shining brightness of Christ's divinity and his divine calling? We'll see again by looking at things in James' life that it was Judaism that had blinded him such. It was his unerring devotion to Old Testament Judaism that caused him, much like the Jews today, by the way, to turn away from who Christ is and instead to keep their eyes affixed on the Old Testament law. Remember, the book of Hebrews hadn't been written yet. The great truths that God expounded through the Apostle Paul had not yet been unveiled uh, in the church. And so James had only, later on in his life, uh, after he accepted the Lord, he had only what might be called the building blocks of faith to deal with. And that's, again, that's not a disparaging comment on James, but it's important for your perspective about the things that he wrote. For years and years and years, he beheld the incarnate Son of God, the Son of God and God the Son, and he still remained an unbeliever. We do not know at what age James decided that Jesus could not be the Messiah. Surely he must have known the remarkable circumstances that surrounded the birth of Jesus and that now comprised the Christmas story. What was it that convinced James that Jesus was not the Messiah? Was it jealousy, perhaps, the same kind of envy that stirred the hearts of Joseph's brethren? Was it James's growing zeal for the law as expounded by the rabbis and as expressed in thousands of rabbinical rules, regulations, and traditions? Many discussions about these things must have ensued around the supper table and in the carpenter's shop. Perhaps it was in the early days that James made up his mind. If Jesus once publicly expressed his views on the synagogue and the Sanhedrin, not to mention the scriptures, there'd be an explosion. Indeed, the first expression of it came in the Nazareth synagogue itself and led to the first attempt upon the life of the Lord. You can read about that in Luke chapter number 4. Long before that, however, James had settled for the law and all of its trappings and traditions. Not until the risen Lord saw him out did James realize how wrong he had been about Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 records this. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. Now let me pause there. I want to read several passages of Scripture, and then we'll move on in the material. You might be saying, well, preacher, that's awful rough on old James. <laughs> was he really that bad? Of a guy? Well, a couple things I'd say about it. Number one, no worse than you were before you got saved. Amen. But then you must ask this question, can all this be substantiated? You know, I find it interesting, in the Word of God, there'll be times that a group is mentioned, and sometimes it will, just due to our neglect, our, our lack of thought and of careful attention, it'll be lost on us who was contained in that group. Can I give you an example? The Bible talks about how Christ in John chapter number 13 washed the disciples' feet. 
And it's easy to miss the fact that it wasn't until after that that Judas left the room. When he washed those feet, and I preached on it just a couple weeks ago, he washed Judas' feet. And sometimes when a group label is given, it's easy to miss the fact of who was present, who was contained in that group. Consider for a moment what the Bible says in Mark 3, 31-35. Now, the Lord Jesus' his ministry uh, had been uh, growing more and more widespread. And uh, as is always the case, anywhere where Christ is preached, chaos is soon to, to follow and, and, uh, and conflict. And so Christ has been making some very definitive statements about who he was and what God had sent him to do. And the Pharisees had begun to spread rumors about him. They had begun to say that he was, uh, you know, in league with the devil and how he, had, he was devil-possessed and so on and so forth. Well, naturally, his family grew a little concerned. I say naturally because supernaturally, if they had perceived it through that lens, they would have believed he was the Messiah. But for whatever reason, for many, many years, they didn't. And they struggled with the concept that he was the one that God had promised to send to Israel. Listen to what it says in this passage of Scripture. There came then his bread and his mother, standing without sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him. And they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him, and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother my sister, excuse me, and my mother. Now, it's easy to look at that and to give his family a pass, but you understand what they were trying to do. When it says they came seeking him, another gospel says they came calling for him, they were trying to pull him away from the public ministry. They were trying to do what was quote-unquote best for him. Hey, listen, there's been a lot of moms and daddies that have, have uh, pulled their children away from calling the ministry, away from calling the mission field, away from a, a calling the separation in the, in the public life because they wanted to shield them, because they wanted to put a bubble around them. And you and I both know we can look with cynicism and criticism at that activity and say, well, that's not right. They don't have faith that what God starts, he'll finish, and that what, what God, the path God chooses, he'll provide for and he'll protect concern. And yet somehow we tend to get past to Christ's mother and his brethren. When it says brethren, you can put James' name in there too. He was part of that group that was saying, hey, listen, quiet down about all this Messiah stuff. Quiet down about your criticisms concerning the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Just come home and mind your own business and behave. This is the product of their doubt. It heats up a little in John chapter number 7. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that about half the book of John uh, takes place in a, in a matter of, of just a, a few months. Uh, most of Christ's public ministry is contained in, in the first few chapters, and then uh, from about chapter 7 on to the end of the book of John, it's comprised of just a small, short period in our Lord's ministry right before Calvary. Six months before the Lord went to the cross, the Bible says in John 7, verses 1 through 5, by the way, some of this will be a little redundancy. We'll mention these as we read further in the notes, but... Just be patient with me. Uh, it says in John 7, 1, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewelry. Now, not Jewelry. Some of y'all ladies got nervous. Amen? <laughs> jewelry. And what it means is he wouldn't walk in Jerusalem, and he wouldn't be present there at the feast. Uh, the reason is given because the Jews sought killing. Now, Christ, of course, was not scared to die, but he tells later on those that were standing there that his hour had not yet come. It says, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren, insert the name James there. Not just James, it was also Judas, it was also Joseph, it was also Simeon, but insert the name James in there too because he's the figure we're focusing on. 
James, along with the rest of them, said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world, for neither did his brethren believe in him. Again, I don't say this to throw mud on James, but to show you from the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry to the end of Christ's earthly ministry, James, along with his other brethren, uh, did not believe that he was the Messiah. Something stood as a barrier, and I think as we read further on in his life, we'll see clearly what it is. But you understand what we're telling Jesus to do. They understand, just like Jesus understood, that if he went to the Feast of Tabernacles, they're going to take him and kill him. Consider the cruelty of their statement. Number one, consider it in light of their unbelief. They weren't saying this in, in sincere concern for him. They, they didn't really care whether people believed that he was the Messiah or not. In fact, they were wanting it proved that he was not the Messiah. Well, there must have been some childhood issues there. And they were willing to do this at the expense of his own death. Now consider, if they don't believe he's the Messiah, John says they didn't. But God says they didn't. If they didn't believe he was the Messiah, then they were willing to send him into his own death. Because they resented him so much. Because they resented what he was saying, what he was teaching, what he was doing. Surely we can see the truth in what Christ says that a prophet is not without honor, saving his own country amongst his own kin. Even at the end of his earthly ministry, John, or James, excuse me, still stood as an adversary against the message and ministry of Christ. Not until the risen Lord sought him out did James realize how wrong he had been about Jesus. After that, he was seen with James, Paul says, then of all the apostles. Boy, isn't that fascinating? Wouldn't you love to have a window into that meeting? How like Jesus to seek him out. What a pity that we do not have a chapter or two on that historic meeting instead of just a passing comment by Paul. Even so, the legalism that James had practiced and promoted all his life died hard. And he carried it over with him into his church life. Again, I know that seems extreme, but we'll prove it here in just a moment. James was a man whom the Jerusalem church, a thoroughgoing Jewish church, much loved and honored. In the early days, he also commanded the respect of the Jewish secular and religious authorities. And I, I almost didn't include this in the notes, but I, I do think there's an important thought here. Eusebius recorded the following statement from Majestus, who lived in the second century, not far removed from the apostolic times. This is what he said, James, the brother of the Lord, who, as there were many of this name, was surnamed the just by all. From the days of our Lord until now, received the government of the church with the apostles. This man, you got your salt shaker ready to take something with grain of salt? Are you ready? This man was holy from his mother's womb. He drank neither wine nor strong drink, but abstained from animal food. A razor never, never came upon his head. He never anointed himself with oil and never used a bath. He alone was allowed to enter the sanctuary. He never wore woolen but linen garments. He was in the habit of entering the temple alone and was often found on his bended knees and asking for the forgiveness of people so that his knees became as hard as camels in consequence of his habitual supplication and kneeling before God. And indeed, on account of his exceeding righteousness, he was called the just. Now, before you fuss at me, before you fuss at the commentator, this is what it says. We cannot say how much of this account was true and how much was the embroidery, or the embroidery of tradition. If by sanctuary the Jesuits meant the holy place, the temple, then the statement is obviously dubious, because James was of the tribe of Judah, not of the tribe of Levi. It is certainly not true that he was holy from his birth, and it is doubtful that he was a lifelong Nazarite. Just the same, the statement doubtless has some foundation. The designation the just 
would endorse his reputation for observing rigidly all of the religious mosaic ritual. And the book of Acts concerned, confirms this fact. Now, I want to read some passages of Scripture over in uh, Acts chapter number 15. You can turn there if you want. We're going to read quite a bit there. But the reason I wanted to read that is because it contains the fact that he was known, and this is substantiated not just by Josephus, but by a lot of people, that he was known as James the Just. In fact, you'll still see that in commentaries today. And I think that, although probably nothing else that is said in there uh, is true, I think it is probably true that he was known by that name, especially because they often gave uh, sort of a nickname to uh, people in the New Testament church if they had a name that was very, very similar uh, amongst, other, uh, amongst other people. Now, there's a few things I want to say while you find your place there. If we were to trace James's history, we would find it mentioned, of course, in Mark chapter number 3 and the corresponding passages in the, in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, we would find him there in John chapter number 7. He's in unbelief still. Uh, we find when he was, uh, it would seem when he was born again, when he believed on the Lord. And that's in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul says that the Lord appeared unto James. It's not talking about James, the brother of John, because it says also that he appeared to the apostles. That would include James, the brother of John. So it's evident he's talking about James, the brother of the Lord. And by the way, that would be in keeping because the prominence of James played later in the church of Jerusalem. When Paul said James, people knew which James he was talking about. He was talking about the James that was the leader of the church at Jerusalem, sort of the, if you want to use the term pastor. They didn't use the term pastor back then, but if you want to use the term pastor. The next time that we see him is in Acts chapter number 1, verse 14. Again, this is another one of those times when a group label is used. It's easy to miss who's standing there. In the upper room, it says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his breath. So evidently, James was in the upper room, along with the other breath. The commentator says later on, we'll read it, and I think it's probably true that very likely James went and, and, and won his, uh, his other brothers and sisters to Christ. Because they appear there in the upper room. And they're not there because they don't believe, they're there because they do believe. So evidently this transition has taken place whenever Christ appeared unto him, or at least shortly thereafter, and then he's seen present in the upper room. The next time we really see James in a prominent way is in Acts chapter number 12. Now, this is an important chapter for two reasons. One, because it shows us the role that James had attained to and the, and the position and influence that he had in the church of Jerusalem, but also because it distinctly shows that the James that we're talking about is not the Apostle James. To me, it's dubious to claim that the James that it is featured so prominently is James the son of Alphys, simply because James the son of Alphys is just mentioned in passing. Uh, and I will, again, we'll say a word in a moment about why people even try to put forth that theory. It's, it's most likely that the James that is mentioned in the Church of Jerusalem is James, the, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. And here's why we know this. So in Acts chapter number 12, it begins with Herod killing James, the brother of John, the apostle. So we know that the James that is mentioned later on can't be James, the brother of John, because he's dead. And of course, then Herod takes Peter, he puts him in prison, waiting until after the, the pagan feast of Easter is, is over and, and uh, is, is wanting to uh, kill him and take his life as well. You know the story probably very well of how the angel comes and wakes Peter up and walks him out of the prison. He goes to John Mark's house, uh, and well, not John Mark's, but John Mark's mother's house, and they're having a prayer meeting. They've been praying for his deliverance. And uh, he you know, knocks on the door, and the little girl, brother, comes to the door, and says, who is it? He says, well, I'm, it's Peter. And she don't even know what to do with that. <laughs> so she just turns and runs back and tells everybody, Peter's at the door. And they say, oh, you're lying. 
And uh, you know the story well. As they come out, they see that God has delivered Peter. Peter comes in. The Bible says in verse 17, But he beckoning unto them, this Acts chapter 12, verse 17, But he beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, Go show these things unto James. And he can't be talking about James, the brother of John. He's dead. Very unlikely he's talking about James, the son of Alphaeus, because James, the son of Alphaeus, is not figured very prominently in Scripture. And it's not likely that, given the role that James plays later on in the church of Jerusalem, it's not, given, it's not likely that Peter, if he said James, they would have said, oh, you mean James, the son of Alphaeus. It is very likely they would have meant James, the brother of the Lord Jesus. It says, go and show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. So, evidently, between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 12, uh, James had attained some position of influence and authority and respect in the church of Jerusalem. And he occupies that place through the remainder of the book of Acts. When we close out the book of Acts, he is still, as it were, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Now, I told you I was taking you to Acts 15. And I know you've waited with bated breath till we've gotten there. And we're there now. I want you to listen to these verses. And I'm going to try, for time's sake, to not make too many comments about them. And uh, we'll see how that goes. Verse number 1 says this, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised, after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. Being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenix and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. When they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth to hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. Put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the naked disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear it? We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as that. I always love how Peter says that. Boy, don't you know somebody must have spit out their, their water when he said that. That, that we're saved as they are. Not that they're saved as we are, but that we Jews are saved as those Gentiles are. Then all the multitude kept silence, gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. After they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men, brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, which is another name for Peter, Simeon had declared how God first did visit the Gentiles to take out them the people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, after this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build uh, again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Now, that sounds pretty good, right? It, it sounds, when we talk about James being sort of, uh, his Judaism dying hard, you read that and you think, well, that doesn't sound like that. But remember, he's talking about Gentiles. He says, wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. 
For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then it pleased the apostles and the elders of the whole church to send chosen men of their company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surname or Sabbath, and Silas, chief among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greetings unto the brethren, which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain went and which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seems good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, from which if you keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare ye well. Now you might say to yourself, well, preacher, it sounds like he gave you facts. But you notice within that he said nothing about how Jews were behaved. He said that Gentiles didn't have to be held under all of the Old Testament law. And even the, the requirements that he placed upon them. There's some nuance given in Paul's uh, epistles, uh, especially the epistle of 2 Corinthians about this matter. But Paul desired that no yoke be put upon them. Peter desired that no yoke be put, put upon them. It wasn't until James stood up that a regulation, that a limitation was placed upon even the Gentiles, and within that he does not permit the Jews to depart in any way from the religious practices and rituals that they've grown so familiar with. Now again, I don't say this to disparage James, but you need to understand that even at the very best, you remember what the commentator said, and I think it's true, that his Judaism at its best and Christianity at its most, at its most rudimentary. All the things that God had said through Paul had not been pinned down yet, at least most of them had not been pinned down yet. Uh, none when James wrote the epistle of James, but even at this moment, when this conference is taking place in Jerusalem, the majority of them had not yet taken place. James always had an affinity for Old Testament law. You might say, well, preacher, I'm not convinced. Let me read another passage to you. That'd be all right. Turn over to Galatians chapter number 2. You're probably familiar with this passage before we even get there. James's name pops up again. And I want to be careful that we don't indict James for something that other people did. But I do think the Holy Ghost mentions James' name for a reason. Paul is telling about God saving him. He mentions, by the way, that the James that he met with in Jerusalem was the brother of the Lord Jesus. In verse number 19 of chapter 1, he says, But other of the apostles saw him none, save James, the Lord's brother. And he talks about how he met with them and how they received him, how they gave him the right hand of fellowship, how they sent him forth. But then he says this in chapter 2. Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, took Titus with me also. I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. And he's talking there about the conference we read about in Acts chapter 15. The first meeting that took place three years after he was saved uh, he's recorded much earlier, but the conference that takes place in Acts chapter number 15, all the elders and the apostles get together, this is what he's talking about in Galatians chapter 2. We're getting Paul's side of the story. He says in verse 3, that neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren, unawares, brought in, who came in privately to spy our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. You remember talking about the Pharisees, which they believed. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. 
But as these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. Don't you love the Apostle Paul? <laughs> God accepted no man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that brought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me towards the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto heathen, and they unto circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. So we read Paul's perspective. Paul says, I went to Jerusalem, I met with them, there were some folks, some, some mucky-mucks, some, some big, important starch-collared Pharisees that showed up. They really thought they were somebody. Paul says, I didn't think there was nobody. They didn't help me none. But they showed up. I stood in the ground. We came to a resolution on this matter. We sent forth word. All that they asked of me and, and, uh, and Barnabas was that as we went to the Gentiles, we remembered the poor, uh, and that we would contribute unto the work there in Jerusalem. Everything seemed hunky-dory, right? And Paul says this, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I was stood into the face because he was to be blamed. For before that, certain came from James. He did it with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews assembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. When I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter that before them all, If thou being a Jew livest after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why can tell us thou the Gentiles live as do the Jews? So essentially what takes place in Antioch, Peter shows up and he's having a good time with the Gentiles. Man, he's eating soft-shell crab, he's eating bacon every morning, you know, and he's just living up like a Gentile, right? And enjoying the time that he's had. And then all of a sudden, certain that the Holy Ghost says, came from James, showed up. When they showed up, they didn't like what they saw. And Peter, this man that seemed to burn with a holy fire, all of a sudden he got scared. Because he knew what it would mean if word got back to James, that he had been spending time living as a Gentile. See, I don't think James had a problem with Peter spending time with Gentiles. I think, I think James had a problem with Peter spending Gentile time with Gentiles. And so he withdraws from him. All of a sudden, uh, they're not fellowshipping anymore. All of a sudden, you know, it, it, it's all matzo ball soup, you know, and unleavened bread. And all of a sudden, now he's not living. And Paul, he, he's angry. <laughs> He doesn't like that. He doesn't like seeing anybody treated like a second-class Christian. And he rebukes him with stands into the face. Now, I say all that. I point to all that because the Holy Ghost went out of his way to say it came from James. There's one more piece of evidence, if you will, we're not in a court of law, that I'll get to here in a few moments. But it seems as though James is deeply connected with Judaism as close as he can be and still walk in grace. Where do we leave off in our notes? We left off quite a ways back here. The impact of the powerful personality, genius, scholarship, education, and Holy Ghost anointing of Paul upon James must be considerable. James was forced to consider the fact that Gentiles were not Jews, and that it was unreasonable to expect Gentiles to become Jews to become good Christians. Such practices as circumcision, Sabbath keeping, and eating only ritually clean food were irrelevant to Gentiles. James modified his views on these issues as a concession of Paul's impassioned convictions, but he was not prepared to dilute them for Jews who became Christians. Nor was James willing to give the Gentiles absolute freedom, talking about the conference in Acts 15. Although he was solidly behind the Magna Carta of the church for Gentile believers, 
He was probably also behind the attended restrictions at the end of the letter signed by the leaders of the Jerusalem church. One suspects that James was always uncomfortable around Paul. Peter was a more pliable man. John was a dreamer. But Paul was equally as strong a man as James. Moreover, he was far better educated, an intellectual genius, an extraordinary soul winner, a church planner, a motivator, and a teacher, and was widely trafficked. James must have felt his own inadequacies very keenly when Paul came to town, usually accompanied by an entourage of Gentile converts from all over the Roman world. James did not intend to give up his Jewishness. An all-out fight between these two men could wreck the church, but they avoided it is remarkable. We can imagine how Paul must have felt, for instance, over the situation that developed at Antioch. Peter, I, I'll read this, but we've already explained it. Peter had been having some great times of fellowship with the Gentile believers in that city. They had wine and dined them all over town. Then some Judaizers arrived from Jerusalem. They were said to have come from James. They thoroughly intimidated Peter, who at once broke off all social intercourse with the Gentile Christians, causing confusion and things everywhere. Paul exploded, and Peter experienced a very uncomfortable half hour or so with a righteously indignant Paul. Of course, the Jerusalem emissaries might have exceeded their commission, but it seemed certain enough that they did come armed with some instructions from James. The ingrained legalism of James came out again on the occasion of Paul's last visit to Jerusalem. Turn over back to chapter 21. This, to me, is the most indicting of, of all of the evidence that James struggled with legalism, Judaism. Well, I'm going to say a few words about where, how this all plays into the book of James before we close. So I don't want you to get some wrong ideas about the intent behind all this. Look back in verse number 17 of Acts chapter 21. This is Paul's last trip to Jerusalem. When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews, excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm down to verse 27. Look back at verse 17. When we were coming to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. The day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. When he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God brought among the Gentiles by his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it, therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. In other words, you know what they're doing to turn the screws on Paul. They're saying, words getting around that you're telling Jews not to keep the law. This is where this chief distinguishing element is found. Without this interaction, we might give James a pass. We might say, well, James was a Jew, it was his culture, he grew up in it, that's the way it was, and, you know, uh, he, he gave some liberty to the Gentiles, but... Uh, you know, he, he really, he really was that speaking Judaism. Yet here we find him in Jerusalem at one of the later points in Paul's ministry, and he's saying with the others that are there, he's saying to Paul, "Listen, you're telling the Jews that they shouldn't keep the law. Where's the reality? Jews shouldn't keep the law. <laughs> They've been freed from that." Paul would go on later to write, and my infinitely wiser than me wife, me and her were talking about it. She pointed out she's a lot smarter than he. She pointed out, she says, you know, a lot of those things Paul wrote, he hadn't written at this point in time. He wrote them in prison later on. And I wonder how often Paul sat back and thought about the decision he made in just a few moments and thought about the responsibility or lack thereof that the Christian in this sensation of grace has to the Old Testament law. He would later on go on to write out that the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that was contrary to us, was taken out of the way. 
was blotted, he was nailed to Christ's cross and taken out of the way. He would go on later on to write how that the law profited nothing, how that we are delivered from that yoke of bondage. But at this time he makes a faithful decision. Verse 23, they say this, Paul. Do therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. Take them and purify thyself with them and be at charges with them. That means pay the sacrifice and the offerings due to consummate this vow. That they may shave their heads and all may know that those things where they were informed concerning thee are nothing. So that thou thyself also, notice how they say this, walkest orderly and keepest the law. They say, if you do this, it will prove to everybody that you are a keeper of the law, that you are a doer of the law, and that you're walking in an orderly manner. As touching the Gentiles, which believe we have written and concluded, that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, and from blood, and from strangling, and from fornication. Verse 26, Then Paul took the men, and the next day purifying himself with them, entered into the temple, to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification, until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. You can go on and read the rest, but if you're a student of the Bible, you know that it's from this point that Paul is arrested and taken to Caesarea and kept under arrest for two years and later on sent on to Rome and uh, so into the ending chapters of the book of Acts. Paul made a decision at this moment that he would yield to James and the other elders that were present there and that he would partake in a ceremony of the Old Testament law. Now, when this is talked about in the notes, I, I can't remember where I put it in. Somewhere in the notes, I put a little asterisk here. And the reason for that is because I don't know that Paul is blameless. Well, I know for a fact Paul's not blameless in this matter uh, because he made the decision. But also because I, I think there's some evidence that maybe Paul was leaning towards this anyway. It talks about in Acts chapter 18 that he had placed a vow on himself. Regardless, James's advice is Paul, go into the temple, offer an offering, give a sacrifice, prove to everybody that you still believe in the law. Paul would later on go on to write to Hebrew Christians that if they wanted to be in the flock, they had to come out of the camp, out of the city. If they wanted to know Christ, they had to go and suffer without the gates. They had to be willing to step out from that system. But in this moment, James is saying, Go ahead and practice the law. Go ahead and keep the law. Calm everybody down and prove to them that you're no enemy of the Old Testament law. The ingrained legalism of James came out again, as we read on the occasion of Paul's last visit to Jerusalem. James cannot resist reminding Paul of the many thousands of Jews which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. Nor can he resist prodding Paul to affirm his own Jewishness. Rather than fight with James, Paul gave in with disastrous results. The broad-mindedness of Paul contrasts with the narrow-mindedness of James. James wrote his letter long before these events took place. When he wrote, the church was still largely Jewish, so hardly any difference existed between Christianity and Judaism in its best and most biblical form. His letter contained hardly any distinctively Christian expressions and no, quote, Christian doctrine. And there needs to be a quote there. Of course there's Christian doctrine in the book of James. But if you try to distinguish it between Judaism at its best, then there doesn't seem to be much of a distinction between the two in James's epistle. All of the great truths of the faith, so common in Paul's letters, are missing from the epistle of James. The Lord's name occurs only twice. James had not as yet grasped the fact that Christianity had ushered in a new dispensation and that the ring of the temple veil had rendered Judaism obsolete. 
James, the Christian, was not a spirit-baptized member of the mystical body of Christ, but rather a genuine Israelite, a completed Jew. James wrote from Jerusalem and before the Jerusalem conference that took place in AD 50 and 51. James likely wrote between 44 and 50 AD. He wrote his letter as from one Christian Jew to other Christian Jews. His purpose was to insist on a belief that behaves. Because most of what James had to say was of a highly practical nature, it's teaching to apply to all Christians in all places and at all periods. Perhaps Paul read the letter before setting out for the Jerusalem conference, contained nothing with which he disagreed. Rather, it would give him an appreciation for the zeal and integrity of the man who he must win to his side at the coming conference if it was to at all be successful. The letter of James, then, was the first New Testament document. James deserves full marks for that task. For being the first person in the New Testament era to begin writing down the teaching of the church. Because he's not an apostle, that piece says a lot for James. His letter was inspired. God breathed by the Holy Spirit himself. Evidently, the Holy Spirit thought very highly of James to give him a place of such high honor and to enable him to write a book that will last forever. Now, I want to read through this biography very quick, and I'm keenly aware of how much time we have left. But I, I want to read. We're going to read one verse in the book of James for tonight's lesson, and I promise you we'll move at, at a fleeter pace in the coming weeks. The first book of James, or the first verse of the book of James is the only biography we're given of James, outside of what we've read tonight. He says this about himself, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, read. James, he at once owns Jesus, both as Lord and Christ, and as God. And he owns himself as his doulos, his slave. That is a different James than the man who for so long refused even to consider the claims of Jesus. Much controversy is revolved around the question of whether James is really the son of Mary and therefore the Lord's half-brother. The three views on this issue are usually named after their respective authors. First is the Hieronymian view, the view espoused by Jerome and the Roman Catholic Church. According to this view, the quote, brethren of the Lord Jesus were really his cousins. Supposedly they were the sons of Alphaeus and Mary, the sister of Mary, Lord's mother. This new sister church of Rome, which upholds the dogma of the perpetual virginity of Mary, it also clears the way for Rome's efforts to exalt the Virgin Mary to find status and for Rome's vested interest in promoting celibacy. We see how well that's working out for them these days. Uh, so in other words, this was a Roman view, but it has no foundation in Scripture. Second is the Epiphanian view, proposed by Epiphanius that these brethren were the sons of Joseph by a previous marriage. This view also plays into the hands of Rome. Little commends it because no historical proof exists that Joseph was a widower with family. Finally, the Helvidian view posits that the brethren of Jesus were just that, the children of Joseph and Mary. Strong support for this view comes from the Gospels themselves. We read of Joseph that he did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. The expression knew her is a well-known Hebrew idiom for cohabitation. The word till shows clearly that she had children afterwards. The word used means not till then or afterwards. Luke gives similar evidence, and she brought forth her firstborn. The word for firstborn is never used of an only son. In other words, the common sense thing to believe is that, just as the Bible says, plainly on the face of it, that Joseph and Mary went on to have children after uh, Mary gave birth to Jesus. And that the brethren that are mentioned are brethren. They are half-brothers, half-sisters uh, half of the Lord Jesus. The family circle at Nazareth was made up of five brothers, Jesus, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and some sisters. So it was a fairly large family. Jewish boys started school at the age of six. 
We can be sure that the spiritual education came, began before that in the home in which he was reared. At school, religion was the primary subject. Attention was paid to languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek with some Latin to good measure. James wrote in Greek with a smattering of Hebraism. James apparently rejected the Lord's messianic claims. No doubt he felt keenly the hostility of his Nazarene neighbors toward Jesus after the incident when the Lord declared boldly who he was. James seems to have become alarmed at the growing hostility of the Pharisees towards the Lord's claims. Rumors were being circulated that Jesus was insane. The authorities accused him of being in league with Beelzebub, so the Lord's brothers, accompanied by Mary, sought to interfere in his work to bring him back home and out of harm's way. The Lord's only response was to declare that those who responded to his message were more truly his mother and his brethren than those who were by his by natural ties. As time passed, the hostility of James and the other brothers of the Lord seemed to grow. Six months before his death, they sneered at him and offered him some advice, which he rejected. John says that neither did his brethren believe in him. Is it surprising then that at his death, the Lord Jesus committed the care of his mother, not to his brother James, but the Apostle John? All of this rejection was changed, however, after the resurrection. The Lord appeared to James. James was instantly transformed from an unbeliever to a committed believer. James then seems to have rounded up the family, led his brothers to faith in Christ. In any case, the whole family was in the upper room soon afterward. The apostles passed over James, the possible successor to Judas, and they chose Matthias by lot. Just the same, James was in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. James soon moved up in the ranks of the Jerusalem church. He was included in the councils of the twelve. Paul met with him when he visited Jerusalem after his conversion. James could have been one of the people who mistrusted Paul at the time. Indeed, Barnabas was the only one who had faith in him and the courage to stand by him. Peter responded at once, but we do not know how James responded. The next reference to James, I know there's a little redundancy in this, be patient with me. The next reference to James was at the time of the murder of the Apostle James and the imprisonment of miraculous escape of Peter. Peter made his way to the home of Mary, mother of John Mark, before removing himself from Herod's power. Tell these things to James and the brethren, he said. Evidently, by this time, James was in a position of leadership in the Jerusalem church. He remained in charge of that church throughout the remaining period covered in the book by the book of Acts. He presided at the critical Jerusalem conference, and he was still in charge when Paul made his last faithful visit to Jerusalem. James was the one who urged Paul to prove his Jewish integrity by paying the costs involved in terminating the Nazarite vows of certain Jews. Those costs were considerable. James, perhaps, judging by the size of the offering that Paul had brought in support of the Lord's work in Jerusalem, money collected from Gentile churches, seems to have decided that Paul was a fluid. Paul anxious not to split the church over an issue that he deemed to be unimportant went along with James' suggestion. There's the asterisk that I mentioned to you. In the temple the next day, he was assaulted and beaten up. The Romans took him into protective custody and eventually imprisoned him in Caesarea. But not until he barely escaped with his life from a plot to kill him. Would have been pleasant if Luke had been able to report a concerted effort by James and the Jerusalem church to rally to Paul's side at the time of his arrest. A mention that James visited him in prison, the minister whose needs would likewise have been heartwarming, but all that we have is silence. Possibly the Jerusalem church felt itself well rid of Paul. As Saul of Tarsus, he had threatened their stand for Jesus. Now as Paul the Apostle, he threatened their Jewishness. In light of the intensely practical nature of James' epistle, we can hope that he did try to do something for Paul. The death of James is not recorded in the Bible. Various traditional accounts have been preserved. According to Josephus, Annas, the uh, Jewish high priest, could be banned in the period between the death of the Roman governor Festus and the arrival, arrival of Albinus, his successor, to get rid of James. Annas is said to have convened a meeting of the Sanhedrin, arraigned James before it, accused him and some others of breaking the law, condemned him to death, and had him stoned. By the way, I've just insert this, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Right. Yeah. 
According to the account of Clement of Rome, James was thrown from the gate of the temple and beaten to death with a club by a fuller. He said to have been buried on the spot beside the temple. How fitting. The year is thought to have been A.D. 62. Regardless of how James died, we must agree he was not the kind of man that could be ignored. On the contrary, he was a very forceful person, activated by the highest motives, and genuinely concerned about the spiritual welfare of his flock. His readers were not primarily his own local preachers. He was concerned about the, quote, 12 tribes of the diaspora. Christian Jews scattered far and wide around the world. Those whom he addressed had not ceased to be Jews upon becoming Christians. Some of them had been present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and had responded to Peter's preaching. They had carried home with them only the most rudimentary knowledge of Christianity. Jesus was the Messiah. He had been crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. He had ascended on high. He was the promised kinsman and redeemer, and salvation was in him and him alone. Those who had been scattered abroad at the time of Stephen's martyrdom understood more. However, even at that time, the gospel was being preached to none but the Jews only. Christian communities were being formed within the Jewish communities in all major cities. At this stage, however, these Jewish Christians were still members of local synagogues. These were the people whom James had in mind when he wrote his letter. James addressed himself to the twelve tribes that were scattered abroad, ignoring the Old Testament separation of the Hebrew people into nations of Judah and Israel. As for the modern idea that the scattered ten tribes in the northern kingdom were lost, James gives no support to that theory. By New Testament times, the word Jews was in common use to describe all Hebrew people, and the word Israelites was synonymous. To all Jewish Christians in the far-flung dispersion of the Hebrew people, James sends his greetings, from both their annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem and their participation in the meetings of the Jerusalem church. Many of the Christian Jews would be familiar with James. Now, we spent a lot of time showing James' connection to Old Testament Judaism, and the reason for that is because you have to understand that connection in order to properly understand the book of James. There are a lot of uh, theories about the book of James. A lot of people believe it's not for this church age, for another time. Uh, I don't necessarily believe that. I believe James was writing as New Testament Christians. But I believe that he was writing at a time when most New Testament Christians were Jews. And I believe his perspective concerning Christianity, concerning faith and what it is and what it does, is intensely practical in nature because of that. Um, I was listening to a Jewish commentator the other day, and he made the statement. He said, as a Jew, we believe what you do uh, amounts to much more than what you think or how you feel. And, of course, he's been sexualized in some ways. I'm not saying that is a faithful representation of what Judaism was in the Bible, but very much, Paul himself said that they that live of the law must do the law. <laughs> the law was a doing thing. It was a practicing thing. It was action-oriented. And because of that, that, that gives us some perspective about what James teaches. This is so important as you get into elements that deal with faith and works in the book of James. My preacher used to say it this way, that James does not preach faith and works. He, he preaches a faith that works. But the perspective of understanding faith to be the, the outgrowth of a belief in God and for it to be the expression of our devotion to Him is what informs, and listen, again, I'm not trying to overlook it's the Holy Ghost that inspires the book of James. Right? It's the Holy Ghost that wrote the book of James. But a lot of people struggle to reconcile some of the things Paul said about faith and works and some of the things James said about faith and works. When in fact those two things dovetail perfectly. The difference is that Paul was showing, uh, shining a light on the faith that motivates works. And James shines a light on the works that is an evidence of true biblical faith. The book of James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. I like that. That's pretty good. There seems to be no cohesive theme to the book of James, excepting as much as our belief should make us behave. That faith 
true biblical faith will manifest itself externally and practically in our everyday life. You know, one of the things, and, and I'm done, I promise I am. I didn't know if I was going to go short or long, but here we are. <laughs> but one of the things that I find fascinating, when you look at that narrative mosaic of what was going on in the church at that time, it's a reminder to me that God can use people that I dislike. People that I clash with. And maybe even some people I disagree with. Now, I'm not trying to minimize how important doctrine is. Doctrinal purity is one of the chief callings and commissions of any New Testament church. We ought to pursue passionately doctrinal purity. But I think there's no question that Paul and James both had some very substantive disagreements about some things. And very honestly, when you look at their actions, they seem to not trust each other or really like each other. And yet God used both of these men under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost to do a great work and to pin down portions of our New Testament. Hey, listen. God is not limited in what He can do. That doesn't mean that God does not give, give great weight and importance to us being right. We need to be right. We only be right through the Word of God because the Word of God is right. But this is a reminder to you and me that sometimes God uses people we wouldn't use. And the fact is, if God uses us, there's probably some people out there that want them. <laughs> But God does. All these things are going to be intensely important over the next seven weeks as we get further into the book of James. But it's important that you frame it with the understanding that as James viewed Christianity, it was an extension of Judaism. It was not a, it was not a separate, wholly different thing. And I'm not saying that it is or it isn't. Certainly within a new dispensation. And Calvary was a transitional moment. It changed everything. It's the hinge upon which human history swings. And certainly living under grace is not the same as living under law. But it is interesting that as a completed Jew, James was able to take some of those Old Testament truths and bring them into a New Testament dispensation of grace and show us how that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Though dispensations may shift and change, and they certainly have, though God has certain expectations under grace that he did not have under law and vice versa, the same God is still rich unto all and is still God over all. And the same faith for the Jew is the same faith for the Gentile and that Jesus Christ, one Lord, one faith, one body, He's still Lord over all. 